Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new edition of Jose Arroyo in conversation with. Uh, today, I'm talking to Matt Hayes, uh, who is a, a journalist who's been uh, published in The Guardian, The New York Times, a regular reviewer for Cineast and many film magazines. Uh, but the reason I wanted to talk to him today is because he's co-editor of a series of books modeled on the BFI classics, but really talking about classics of queer cinema. Uh, first for Arsenal Press uh, for many years, and now I believe with McGill Queens. Yeah. So hello, Matt. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about how how the series came about, what inspired it. Well, it it was interesting. I had just um, come through a, a, quite an, a busy, very busy period. And my book had come out, um, which I'll plug here, my book with Divine on the cover, The View from Here. Mm. And it just won, it actually just won a Lambda Award. And so Tom, Tom Waugh, said, we have to have lunch um, because I'm really angry that I haven't won a Lambda and you have. <laughs> so he had, a, it was very sweet. He had a congr he had me over for a congratulatory lunch. It was very, very supportive and sweet. And he was very instrumental in helping me with the book, working on the book. And we were talking and he said, you know, we, we had discussed various editions of the BFI series, which we're big fans of. And he said, what we, we should really do, it was really Tom's idea. He said, we really should give um, seasoned writers and up and coming writers ch a chance to do a monograph, a single book on a single film. And he said, I just love with, with the BFI series that, you know, writers can really go in depth. Um, and we talked about the tone of the series. We wanted it to be, uh, to have obviously academic rigor but to be accessible so um, so that the books would be very readable and reader friendly. Um, and, and that's the tone that we've really aimed for with the series. We started at Arsenal Pulp, we approached Arsenal Pulp, we both, my book and his, he had a, num a number of books published there. They're a Vancouver based publisher, Brian Lab and Robert Ballantyne, who are really great guys, really fantastic and very supportive. And they loved the idea. Um, we started it um, as a limited, we saw it as a finite series and then we had, I think we had originally commissioned about 25 books. In the end, we got 19 volumes. So people drop out for various reasons, you know, things come up in life. And then when we finished it, Quill and Choir, which is a Canadian books magazine on, on books and publishing, did a, a very nice profile of the series and said, well, it's here it, here it is. It's come to a close. And we talked, we were reflecting on it. It was a night, it was a, it was a lovely article that they did on, on, on us and the series. Um, and we were very happy with it because we had got um, reviews in academic publications uh, saying this is a really interesting series that has expanded the canon, uh, the thinking of what the queer canon is. And we'd also been written about in, in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, Andrew Holleran did a review of several of the titles in the Washington Post, which was great. And the New York Times interviewed me, interviewed me about the series. We thought it was done. And then a couple of publishers, notably McGill Queens University Press, uh, Jonathan Crago contacted us and said, well, we don't think this should be over. What have you got? Like, let's uh, put out a call for more titles. And so we we reborn again at McGill Queens, which has been really exciting. Hmm. 
tell me a little bit about um, the process of, I suppose, determining which films count as classics. <laughs> what kind of thinking went uh, uh, behind that? Well, what was the rationale? For well, that's a really good question. I mean, there, there are obvious ones like Will Aitken did a great book on death in Venice. Um, Lucas Hildebrandt did a wonderful one on Paris is Burning. Uh, those, those maybe seem like more obvious titles. But um, we also like the idea that if a single author could make the case that this, that this is why this is an, an important film, why they feel it's a classic film, that then they make that argument in the book, even if it's a lesser known film. And we like that idea because, of course, we have obvious, more obvious titles like Strangers on a Train or, as I said, uh, you know, Death in Venice. Those are more obvious ones. But we rejected some proposals. Like we had several proposals on Brokeback Mountain. But we felt that that film had uh, deservedly got a lot of attention. And, uh, you know, I myself have reviewed like at least two anthologies uh, on Brokeback Mountain. We really wanted to to try, if we could, to make, reserve some of our titles for um, perhaps undiscovered films or overlooked films um, so that we could kind of expand ideas around, as you say, what, what constitutes a classic, because of course that's really subjective and contentious, right? So we wanted to really expand ideas around that. And, and that's something that I think that we've done quite well. We've got a few books here. Well, this is a lovely book that John Davies did on trash, mm -hmm. uh, the Warhol film, and I and I love that. That's a great book. Um, we just had um, this is a really exciting in the new series. Um, two authors, two trans authors, academics have written a book on uh, Boys Don't Cry, Chase Joint, and Morgan Page, and so they're actually kind of basically reclaiming and rethinking that film, which has become a you know a problematic film for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really fantastic book. This is just hot off the presses. So, um, you know, we've had a lot of things. And then uh, Robert Cagle did a book on Scorpio Rising. That's the only short film that we have in the series, uh, the Kenneth Anger film. So, yeah. you know, we had a broad range of different kinds of titles. And it's really it's really exciting. It's really exciting going forward. Um, we've got we're we're going to put out another 25 books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we've got a lot in the in the new series. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Arsenal titles and uh, the Queens one, um, the McGill Queens one separately, um, because it seemed to me that kind of one of the interesting, well, the, you know, there were, I think, many interesting things about um, the first series. Um, one is that... I hesitate to use the word disproportionate. <laughs> Uh, because I think it's a good thing, right? But there's a lot of Canadian titles, and disproportionate to one would to what one would expect, say, from a list published out of London or New York. Yeah. yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about, you know, to what extent was kind of, you know, representative <laughs> Canadian content part of the mission? Well, that's a really that's a really good question, um, and. Uh, both Tom and I have taught, uh, I think you probably taught the course too when you were at Concordia, but both Tom and I have caught, taught Canadian cinema classes and, and queer cinema. So um, we, we feel there's a lot, there's a crossover, a degree of crossover. Um, but also to be per perfectly honest, from the vantage point of Arsenal Pulp Press, um, there are 
uh, not really an academic publisher per se. They're they're a publisher publisher. Um, and in order and in Canadian publishing, of course, one needs to get uh, Canada Council funding. So we needed to say, look, we've got Canadian content in this series. It's not just it's not just a, we're not just going to go out to write about uh, Hollywood films or European films or Asian films. We're going to write about things from from the home country, from Canada. So we had to have we wanted to have a number of Canadian authors, and we also wanted to have Canadian films we were discussing. Um, as it turns out, that's not hard to do with my book, The View from Here. I noted uh, when I wrote it, I wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail saying, "Gee, it's funny how much of it turned out how much how many of the chapters in the book were on Canadian filmmakers." And so I sort of pondered why it it seemed uh, part of it is uh, you know government involvement in funding uh, these funding agencies. Uh, Will often, uh, uh, you know, help uh, queer filmmakers, uh, and also Canadian film itself is is kind of it's it's marginal, right? It's marginal. It's almost like horror movies. It's like what David Cronenberg says about horror movies, right? It's just it, it is entirely marginal, and Canadian cinema is like that. So um, we're a little bit on the fringes. Um, Brad Fraser once made the argument to me that Canada is like. Uh, <laughs> Canada's the gay country to America's uh, straight bully, <laughs> right? We're essentially a queer country. So um, that all kind of factors into it. Yeah. I think it's a great thing. It's uh, an unusual thing. And hopefully it kind of brings uh, some attention, you know, to, to those films. Um, the other thing that caught my eye in the first uh, series was, I suppose, were there any discussions so obviously there were discussions about what constitutes uh, uh, a classic, but were there also discussions about what constitutes a film? So um, I might be misremembering, but it seems to me that John Grayson's Zero Patience, was that a film or was that a, a video art? Oh, no, that's a, that's a film. That's a feature film. That okay. was then, I remember writing about, was one of the first cover stories I did for Extra when that film was being made and Jeremy Podesta was Jeremy Podesta was the pub, unit publicist. Mm. So I was dealing with him and interviewed John for a, it was a cover story for Extra about Zero Patience and um that was then his his biggest budget film to date. He was very excited to have a budget to do it and um I mean that's a really interesting film because of course Robin Wood um, got out a chainsaw and wrote a scathing review of it in Cine Action, absolutely scathing. So then there were responses to Robin Wood's um, attack on the film. Um, it's really interesting and also really interesting now, especially in light of the fact that the whole zero, uh, the patient zero theory has been completely debunked in the past few years. Um, uh, and Lori Lind made a really wonderful film called uh, Killing Patient Zero, a documentary, which John is in, John Grayson is in. And it's it's a really great documentary which goes into it. Um, I think that that book by uh, Susan Nabe and Wendy Pearson, and they did a fantastic job. This is one of I think one of the best books in the series. They did a really good job of um, analyzing exactly what John was up to, um, both uh, the the kind of theory he was bringing to the project, but also the the kind of street um activism that he was bringing to 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 the film and they really got it and i think it's uh it's like again it it's full of academic rigor but it's very very accessible it's a great read this is a really magnificent book i love it as much as i, as I love the film <laughs> uh, the other thing that caught my eye was 
um, the Boys in the Sand, L.A. Lays Itself yeah. uh, book. So I think kind of, you know, porn has been such a kind of crucial and critical part of all kinds of queer cultures. Uh, and it's certainly unexpected to see in a series like this. So again, I just wondered kind of, you know, what conversations went around uh, that decision. <clears throat> well, heading into this with Tom, uh, you know, I figured with Tom Waugh, <laughs> there was gonna be porn. <laughs> and I, I was very, as you say, porn has been so influential. Boys in the Sand is such an interesting film. And uh, Wake, Wakefield Pool was very generous with me with his time for the chapter that I did on him in my book. So I was thrilled when uh, when Cindy pitched Cindy Patton pitched that idea of the two very sort of oppositional films um, in in the porn canon, um, and then to have a lesbian writing about it just to me it seemed really titillating and really interesting and and, and it's interesting an interesting volume, um, and you know the whole positive image negative image thing it's it's so fascinating it's so fascinating it's so much of so much of queer representation, it seems like it's a reaction to what's come before, you know? Um, Vito Russo's call for more positive images and then the new queer cinema is like pushed back on that. Um, mm -hmm. And people emboldened by the AIDS crisis, you know? I find all of that really, really fascinating. And now there's, a, we're going through another round of like, gee, why can't a, a gay rom-com make it at the box office, you know, <laughs> right? I, I just find it really interesting This the, these debates go on. Well, Dahmer, obviously also Dahmer, these debates go on and on and on and on. Um, and, oh, and Tar, of course, Tar is getting a lot of, I haven't seen it yet, but it's getting a lot of pushback because of um, the central figure in the, in the film. Hmm. Um, I, thinking about uh, uh, Boys in the Sand and um, L.A. Lays Itself, it's hard to imagine now that films would be a central or have the importance uh, uh, that those two did, uh, partly because, you know, all of the porn industry has changed so much. I think, you know, maybe up to the 80s, you could point to something, I don't know, like Power Tool, which, you know, you imagine that uh, uh, everyone or a large portion of gay men of a particular generation would have seen. Um, whereas, you know, that is no longer the case, really. Um, so I think, uh, you know, kind of very, very interesting choice of films to discuss, uh, you know, from a particular uh, point uh, in time. Um, so um, moving on to, to, to the new series, one of the things that strikes me most is the design, which not to trash the other, uh, series, but it seems so much more vibrant and it really catches your eye. Uh, and I wonder what kind of discussions went around, you know, the design of the new series and also, you know, uh, publishing and marketing and kind of getting it out there. Um, we, you know, we were uh, very uh, specific in our concerns that we wanted to make sure that um, the books uh, got got attention. Um, this is this is trickier and trickier and trickier all the time, as anyone in the publishing business will will acknowledge. Um, is that all the newspapers now have just cut back on their cultural coverage, and that includes books. It just they don't see it generating advertising or clicks, 
And it's unfortunate. I mean, the Globe and Mail used to have a pull-out book section. The reason I picked up the Globe every Saturday was for that book section. I wrote for it myself sometimes. And of course, uh, you know, and then you pick up the Times on Sunday, New York Times on Sunday and The Guardian, and you'd read about books. And there's just less and less coverage. It's harder and harder to get um, traction, is the word I use, you know, some attention for books. When my book came out, it was 15 years ago, it was reviewed across the country into various alternative publications and newspapers. And, um, you know, I was interviewed about it on the CBC and you got, you got your coverage. Um, it's so much harder now, you know, and these titles that were, they're coming out. So we're doing things like blog posts and, um, and interviews like this really help. Thank you very much, mm -hmm. uh, to get word out about, about the books. Um, and, but it, you know, it's, it's tricky. Um, we're, we're, we did do some ads. We did some ads in both. Uh, cineast i think we had an ad in film comment of course which isn't publishing right now but we also in the gay and lesbian review and we may try to do more ads uh to just to get some attention for the the series um it's harder and harder to get editorial space you know and as a freelancer i know when pitching stories it's it's really tricky to get you know get a publish uh, an, an editor to say okay i'll commission you to do this um but there was never much money in it but now there's even less it's it's harder and harder and harder to get it um to get somebody to agree to a profile of an author or a book review mm. well the series looks terrific now and i think it'll be and the, i think that will really help um what did you learn from the first series <laughs> yeah kind of you know so you did a whole batch and you thought it was a finite kind of series you know what did you learn from that first series and in fact when did it start? When did you start publication? We started about about 15 years ago. So it's just okay. after my book came out. Um, what I learned was uh, that um, academics have very different attitudes towards deadlines than that journalists do. <laughs> um, and some some people, uh, because, we're, because Arsenal Pulp was not an academic press, um, the idea of somebody just saying, well, I, you know, I need another six months. Th thanks so much for understanding at McGill Queens. That's it's fine. We're, we're, we're not, we're not counting, uh, we're not counting our eggs till they're hatched until they're hatched. Right. Like, uh, it's kind of obvious, but at Arsenal pulp, we were, um, th there was a, a tendency to, uh, announce, you know, say we're going to announce the books in our, in the catalog for the upcoming season. And then someone would say, well, look, I've, you know, gee, I've, I had too much teaching to do, or I had this other deadline, and and that became that became a, a, a problem at times with certain authors. And one book actually just got ditched. I mean, we just had to abandon it because the the publishers were really unhappy with the attitude of the author, who was saying, "Well, oh, gee, I'm an academic, so it's just how it works in academia. We push things ahead all the time." Um, so it's inter it was interesting to see those kind of worlds clash a bit. Um, I've I, having worked having one foot in journalism and one foot in academia um, has been really interesting for me because of course if I'm a if I'm working as a journalist and I'm getting paid I know that if I miss that deadline and I don't have a very good explanation for it up front I'm going to just be cancelled I'm not going to get the money and I'm not going to ever be invited back <laughs> so um, it's a wonderful thing for a procrastinator to be a journalist because it just forces you to get things done and that. That's part of the reason I think I was drawn to journalism because I I'm really bad at procrastinating. So 
Um, but academic deadlines are just the worst because, you know, you, you can just keep, keep kicking the ball down. I've seen it with so many people. I mean, people who do brilliant dissertations and I'm like, this has to be a book. You have to develop this into a book and they never do, or they just, or some people of course never finish their PhDs and abandon them, which is also can be quite traumatizing. So, um, you know, it's, it, these things are, these ideas of deadlines and getting things done are, I just learned a lot about it and how, and how different brains work. Tom is really impressive. Tom Wah is incredibly impressive because you know him very well. He's a, a dedicated workaholic. Um, he is the personification of the Protestant work ethic. He never stops working. Um, he, he will call me on Christmas day and say, why isn't this done? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm in Calgary at my brother's place. I don't have my desktop with me i don't know what you're talking about and he's like well why isn't this done i'm like it's a holiday and he doesn't understand that tom just doesn't get it so he but he you know works and works and works he never misses a deadline um never he gets everything done on time if not early and it's it's a very impressive work ethic i i will never live up to it but i'm impressed by it <laughs> tell me a little bit more about what other uh, things you learned either about commissioning or indeed about the practical editing of work or about, you know, subsequently kind of, you know, what worked better, what didn't work better and how that might have influenced your, your selection of future titles, say. Well, I think <clears throat> one of the things that <clears throat> I think is really important in the series and one of the things that we often came back to people with is in their proposal, they'd say, you know, this is why this film was really important to me. I, this is, I first saw it at, at this time in my life and it, it had this huge impact on me. And then, and then when we would read the book, the manuscript, a lot of times that personal uh, element wasn't there. That, that um, anecdote about what, when they first saw it or, or when they were teaching it and, and how revelatory the film was to them, both the first time they saw it in, in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so we would come back and say, you know, the personal stories that you have, that's part of the book, mm -hmm. um, how the film struck you, how the film changed you. Um, and, and so I really love that the, the, the people writing the books talk personally and, um, and intimately about what the film meant to them and how it, how it impacted them. Cause that, I think that should be part of the, any book, you know, about a film uh, like this in this series. Um, and so that's something that we really try to incorporate and try to bring out in our writers. And and that's been very, um, I think it's been very successful. Okay. Um, so um, after this experience of, you know, roughly 15 years of doing this first series, uh, you've now got how many coming out? We've got approximately, I believe, 25 books coming out um uh, of which i think five are now out uh, yeah we've commissioned more but we are uh you know as often happens uh life happens and sometimes people say well like i'm i'm not going to you know some people are like slated to submit a, a manuscript in like 10 years <laughs> right uh -huh. so some people might not be and, and i'm actually working on one myself on the legendary the legendary documentary about sex work in Vancouver called Hookers on Davy. Oh, right. okay. yeah. I love that film. I've been teaching it really every year for probably 15 years. I teach it, taught it in the queer cinema class and teach it 
in my documentary class now at Concordia. And it's really a remarkable film by Janice Cole and Holly Dale um, about very frank fil film about sex work from 1984, about people working in the streets of Vancouver. <laughs> and uh, it's, I love that film and it, it was way ahead of its time and its inclusion of trans sex workers. Um, and the filmmakers really had to fight to, to include everyone in the film. Um, so I'm really excited about that project. And what can we look forward to? Uh, what do we have coming out? We have a book on Orlando coming out that's magnificent. Um, David Grieven has written a book on Maurice, which is great. Um, Chris Dupuis has written a wonderful book on the Canadian film Winter Kept Us Warm, mm. um, which was the first uh, Canadian English language Canadian film to be invited to Cannes. And it's a gay love story, as I'm sure you know that film as well, Winter Kept Us Warm by David Sector. Uh, and Tom and I both love that film. And uh, in fact, the filmmaker David Sector, now in his 70s, I mean, he said that he has credited Tom with keeping that film alive, keeping it in the public eye, because it was it would have fallen into obscurity had it not been for Tom consistently writing about it and insisting that gay film festivals and Canadian film festivals screen it. Uh, so it's a really interesting book, and I think that Chris did a really great job with it. Um, I learned, I, I thought I knew the film like like the back of my hand, but I learned new things from the book. So Chris did some really interesting research. Uh, so these are all ones that are already in-house, so to speak, and just waiting to be published, yeah? Yeah, they're, they're going through the pipeline right now, peer review and everything else. That's also different. We didn't have uh, anonymous peer reviewers at, Arsenal Pulp and now obviously Miguel Queens being an academic uh, publishing house we do oh, and so that's exactly. also that's also really an interesting process to watch and to see how that uh how that works um it is interesting because has that affected so so one of the things about the BFI series is that you know they often publish just like you know um I suppose celebrated but non-academic writers on a particular film right i think salman rushdie did one on the wizard of oz say yes yeah um, so it now going through peer review does it affect your commissioning no no uh in fact we i think we've commissioned uh we it's closed now that we're not taking any new pitches so we've we think we've commissioned uh, all the books for now, anyway, unless McGill Queens opens it up again. Yeah, um, but do you have but, as many non-academic writers as you did, say, in the first series? Uh, there, I think we had more academic writers this, this time around. And I, one of the reasons for that, I think, is because <clears throat> when we um, when we reopened it, uh, put, put notices out on academic listservs and, you know, and wrote and uh, someone did an article in CBC uh, on the CBC website about it saying, we're open again for proposals. We were really overwhelmed by uh, the number of proposals we got and how great they were. Um, it was a lot of work going through them. It was a lot of work trying to figure out which ones we could take on and which ones we couldn't. And uh, we were just really impressed by the number of people who who said, I love, we love the first series. A lot of the authors said, we really want to be part of this. So we were very lucky because we got enough press enough attention with the first round that uh, we, we were really blown away. And we had, that's the most difficult part. That's the most painful part of both series was when Tom and I had to have to sit down 
a couple of very long meetings and go through all these proposals and decide which ones we were going to commission and which ones we, we felt we couldn't. And a very, very difficult process because we had some really great proposals and we just only had so many books that we could, you know, only slots that we could fill. Um, that's always, you know, uh, 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 a consideration, you know, kind of one always has to turn people down. <laughs> but um, you know, to move the conversation a little bit in another direction, kind of, and without meaning to put you on the spot, uh, uh, um, can you just mention some of your favorites from the first series, you know, and you, um, ones uh, that uh, uh, have spoken uh, to you uh, in the current series as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I I really feel that um, uh, Will Aiken is just a remarkable writer. And so um, his book on death in Venice, you no, know, then that's a really old uh, classic film. It, he really breathed a lot of new life into it. I've read it. I love it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, his 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 uh, writing is often compared to chocolate. <laughs> Andrew Holleran compared it to, to fine chocolate in uh, the Washington Post, which was a which is a lovely title line. And uh, Will told me that that's not the first time his writing has been likened to chocolate, which I love. Um, but I also feel like Lucas Hildebrandt did a really great job with Paris is Burning. Because, of course, that film has come under a lot of criticism um, for basically cultural appropriation as a white middle class lesbian making the film. And I thought that he very artfully and very gracefully um, talked about all of the problematic, uh, you know, problematic uh, aspects of the film, but still managed to come around to defending the film. He obviously really loves the film and and did it in a really, um, I thought, really brilliant way. And I, I think it's just, it's a really fine book. It's one I'm going to look back on. Um, but I'm really proud of uh, this. Uh, Mar Maria Sanfilippo uh, wrote this book, a new book for us on, I'm sorry, it's just a black, uh, this is a hardcover. So it's just on appropriate behavior, which is a bisexual romantic comedy. And um, it, again, it's sort of a title that isn't very well known, but she does a really great job with, with this new book that we've got coming out. Um, and the other one I was going to bring up was the other one that I that I really loved was Robbie Schwartzwald's book Schwartzwald Schwartzwald's book on crazy, um, and that also is you know that film is seen as problematic by some people. Um, it's a as the late straight director Jean Marc Vallée just died a couple of years ago uh, tragically at fifty eight you know died quite suddenly. Um, but that's, you know, straight director making a film about gay youth, but it's like um, Robbie does a really great job, I think, of coming around and discussing the film in depth and his own reaction to it. And, um, and, and it's a, you know, I love the film Crazy. I've taught it. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful film. And I think that I'm really glad that Robbie, who's written so much about Quebec culture and really understands it so well, was able to talk about it in in depth and to bring such vibrance to the film and uh, and to honor it and I think that he did a really great job so I love that book but you know I'm I have to be honest with you I hate to sound like this <laughs> but I'm really proud of the of the series in its entirety I think it it's really really interesting 
And Glenn Davis, um, British academic, wrote a review of it at one point uh, and said that we had we were helping to reimagine the canon, the queer canon. And that was a, like that was just one of the most lovely compliments I could imagine getting um, because, you know, that he's a very respected scholar and 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 that's what we were really aiming for aiming to do was to have people think about um, new and different ways of thinking about what the canon what constitutes the canon. And then that's what he said. So I was like, wow, that's just our dream to hear that. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, we're almost running out of time. Uh, so um, thank you very much for, for talking to us. Very uh, best wishes for the rest of the series. Uh, I think they look terrific. I've already seen some of the titles uh, and it's a terrific series. Uh, and I hope uh, your readership only increases with time. Oh, so thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for being for having us on. This is really sweet, and I love that you um, that you smoke during the interview. You know, <laughs> I don't know if you remember Jean Luc Godard used to fly in by Concord, and then he would come to Montreal and lecture at, at Concordia once a week. He was lecturing, and he apparently he just sat on stage and smoked. Yes. And just well, <laughs> these are different times, and I'm afraid I've lapsed. So. Uh, you know, I'll get back to the non-smoking soon. Who can turn the world on with a smile? Who can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile? Well, it's you, girl, and you should know. Glance and every little movement you show.